If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of March 12, 2023. The podcast that serves crow in bento boxes. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's hyperactualize the news of the bogus. We start off with a story about New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who's screeching because people wearing face masks mess up their facial recognition software. And who called it back from the very beginning? Adams said, quote, We are putting out a clear call to all of our shops. Do not allow people to enter the store without taking off their face mask. And then once they're inside, they can continue to wear it if they so desire to do so. Okay, first off, Adams, they're not your shops. You're just a whiny narcissist LARPing as the lord of your little duchy. Second, even if you were to somehow make this a law and not just wishing, the fugitives you're looking for, all those people who are apparently evading law enforcement because you shouldn't be put in charge of a paper bag, let alone a major metropolitan city, are already breaking the law, so they're not very likely to just obey you this time. Quote, Let me be clear. Some of these characters going into stores that are wearing their mask, they're not doing it because they're afraid of the pandemic. They're doing it because they're afraid of the police. We need to stop allowing them to exploit the safety of the pandemic by wearing masks, committing crimes. And what reason do you have to believe that people wearing masks are out to commit crimes? If I'm not feeling well and I need to go out, isn't wearing a mask the responsible thing to do? Isn't that what we were told? And even if the mask itself doesn't stop transmission of whatever you have, it's at least a signal for other people to give you space. What about people with specific issues like immunocompromised people? Is everyone who's had an organ transplant out to rob a place? Or would this be a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the New York State Human Rights Law? The main incident Adams was talking about was when someone robbed, shot, and killed a Manhattan deli worker. Here's the thing. The suspect wasn't just masked. They were wearing a hazmat suit. NYPD Chief Jeffrey Madry echoed his call, calling it a common-sense approach, which is what they always call it when they can't defend it rationally. The funny thing is, crime in New York City, following the nationwide trend, is going down. Reported major crimes dropped 5.6% in February compared to a year ago. Robberies dropped 10.5% and burglaries fell 15% over the same time period. But the city's Department of Health still says, quote, We strongly recommend everyone to wear masks in all indoor public settings to reduce the spread of these viruses. Ooh, are they aiding and abetting? A lot of store owners don't like it, including one who was recently robbed, quote, What am I supposed to do? Ask every man, woman, kid who walks in to buy a juice to take their mask off? So they take the mask off, then they rob me. How am I supposed to be safe? I have to make a living. What am I supposed to do, close up shop? Even a Manhattan cop said it was, quote, Just another desperate act by a desperate administration. 
What store owner or worker wants to have an unnecessary confrontation with a possible criminal? It's not worth it for them. The mayor should be worried about the people in Albany and try getting them to change the laws. Wear masks! Don't wear masks! Do this! Now do that! You must do this! But now if you do that, you're a criminal! Does this just mean that more people are getting the idea that politicians like Adams really don't know what they're doing? If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. A while ago, we speculated about the real reason why there's been so much misinformation and fear-mongering about the Hyperloop. State cultists don't want private companies succeeding where they've failed so many times. And now, one of the Hyperloop companies has the data to back it up. Whereas high-speed rail has pretty much been a universal money loser, despite the hype of politicians who put it in place, Transpod's system is profitable, while being faster and more affordable than an airplane, comfortable for riders, and completely electric. Canada's Via Rail is a money sinkhole, with a net operating loss of 491 million Canadian dollars in 2021 and 553 million in 2020. Unless you think COVID is to blame, the system lost 409 million Canadian dollars in 2019. SNCF, France's state-owned railway company, is touted as one of the best high-speed rail operators in the world, but they've generated losses in five of the last ten years. The Shanghai Metro Maglev has never once shown a profit. Why are there all these losses? One word. Inflexibility. The infrastructure is made as cheaply as possible, but the cars are massively expensive, meaning that the routes can adapt to changes in how people travel. It all results in one thing, large ongoing interest payments. Conversely, Transpod's Alberta project is forecasted to cost just under $18 billion U.S., and less than $1 billion of that is the vehicle's. By placing most of the expense on the infrastructure itself, the upfront costs can be paid off sooner with cars added and replaced at a fraction of the cost. And that means they won't have to keep paying that interest. They also have the benefit of offering both cargo and rail transport. Maglevs can't carry cargo. But cargo has always been the most profitable. And the flexibility helps out there, too. 
They can have mostly passenger cars operating during the day when people are commuting, with the bulk of the cargo being moved at night. This can also adapt to seasonal and other changes that alter how many people are traveling and how much cargo there is to move. The cars are much smaller and cheaper, but they can also be linked together train-like, or multiple cars can run simultaneously on a route, which is difficult for high-speed rail because of the enormous cost of the cars and the limitations of maglevs. And while Transpod does intend to try and maximize utilization of their vehicles, it isn't critical to staying in the black like it is with passenger rail. Transpod says their full project debt should be paid back in just over 20 years. If they could only carry passengers, that debt would be extended another seven years. Of course, the proof of it will be when it's finally up and running. Construction of the full inner city line is scheduled to begin in 2027, and Transpod and other Hyperloop companies have many other projects underway in other countries as well. Whereas the naysayers just shut their eyes, stick their fingers in their ears, and pretend that nothing is happening. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government sensors. It's essential in this day and age, so go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world, and they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. a lot of different and varied harms that would come if the enemies of free speech get their way and repeal Section 230, but interestingly, tech nerd's Rihanna Pfefferkorn points out one that isn't quite obvious at first, food safety. She talks about an outbreak of food poisoning among customers of Daily Harvest, a meal kit startup. According to the FDA, 400 people nationwide became sick, a third of whom were hospitalized. Some even had to have their gallbladders removed. And the way it all came to light is the amazing crowdsourcing abilities of the Internet. Numerous people posted their horror stories to Reddit, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media outlets. And thanks to the wisdom of crowds, they noticed the common denominator, Daily Harvest's lentil and leek crumble. Victims were then able to call on the FDA to respond. In order to get that far, you have to go through state agencies, but although an outbreak in a state might be relatively straightforward, when the outbreak is among people scattered all over the nation, it can be really slow to track it down. That's the big role that social media played. Now they knew it wasn't just scattered cases of food poisoning. They had the cause. But none of that would have happened without Section 230. Businesses have notoriously used every legal trick available to them to stop people from posting bad reviews, everything from trademark violations to terms of service violations. 
But one thing they can't do is sue the social media sites where these are posted. There, the free minds of the free market have free reign to share their experiences, even if it makes some corporation somewhere look bad. Yelp, Amazon, Angie, reviews on Google Maps, all of them are protected. If Section 230 were gone, all of these companies could be sued by businesses all over the country for libel whenever a user posts a negative review. After all, that's exactly what prompted Congress to pass Section 230 to begin with, Stratton Oakmont v. Prodigy, where a securities firm sued an ISP because of anonymous posters accusing them of criminal acts. Imagine if a site has to take down all negative reviews in order to avoid libel suits. You'd be left with only positive reviews, which would mislead people. And those misled people could themselves sue for negligence in removing information that could have warned them of harm. In other words, there'd be nothing at all a company could do to avoid libel. Well, other than shutting down entirely, that is. And as we saw directly with the Backpage case, these sites can actually help law enforcement as well as scientific research and consumer safety. But not if the information they need and use is taken down for fear of lawsuit. And given the fact that something as seemingly unrelated as food safety will be compromised by the repeal of Section 230, it's safe to say there's hardly any aspect of our lives that won't be adversely affected once it's gone. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to torify this week's biggest bogun emitter. And this week we crown a queen of corruption, none other than AOC, who apparently is just initials now. In September 2021, her attention whoring leveled up as she showed up to the Met Museum's gala with a white dress with Tax the Rich written on the back. The story behind it shows her sheer hypocrisy. Tickets to the gala are $35,000 a ticket. The total cost for her and her boyfriend would have been upwards of a hundred grand. That's if they even allow you to buy a ticket to begin with. They're very expensive. Members of Congress generally aren't invited, and it isn't even her district. So she did what any self-respecting politician would have done. Blatant graft. After schmoozing with organizer Anna Wintour of Vogue, she was able to score free tickets as their guests. 
But members of Congress can't just get tens of thousands in benefits from companies that employ lobbyists, and that includes Vogue, who owns a large share of cable company Spectrum. Although she could accept an invitation from the Met, she couldn't do it through a registered lobbyist. And it's now known that her own anti-corruption lawyer warned her not to do it. Last week, the Office of Congressional Ethics found that emails between the Met and AOC's office were made deliberately to obfuscate the relationship with Vogue. In other words, AOC received a gift worth nearly six figures from a lobbyist and conspired to cover it up. So much for sticking it to the rich! She didn't even pay for the dress. She got it haute couture, custom-designed specifically for her, which ordinarily would cost over $10,000 for a $1,300 rental. A dress designed and made specifically for her, a rental. And she didn't even pay that much. Her campaign staff got the designer down to just $300 for weeks' worth of labor, well under minimum wage. Ethics investigators couldn't figure out how they talked the designer down to such a low price, and the designer has refused to cooperate, so they'll be sending a subpoena. By the way, specific instructions to the designer was, quote, She shouldn't look rich. And it wasn't just that. $635 bright red ribbon pumps knocked down to a rental, after which they weren't worth hardly anything. And a staffer texted the designer, quote, just confirming you're thinking of providing AOC's boyfriend with a Thai cummerbund? There is no restriction on Riley, by the way. Restriction meaning ethics rules. And even after all that, AOC tried to weasel out of paying for it. By the time the ethics investigation started, $345 worth of makeup had went unpaid for six months, which was sent to a debt collector marked Extremely Overdue. A $77 hairdo went unpaid, and the stylist emailed AOC's staff, quote, It would look terrible if we had to file a complaint with the New York Department of Labor against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Transportation of an idling gas guzzler to the tune of $586, which she managed to split four ways, even though the other three people were specifically there for her. A $4,600 hotel bill, $400 shoes and bow tie for her boyfriend, and $570 car service went unpaid for eight months. In fact, the only person who got paid in full was her manicurist because she insisted an immediate payment in cash. So now you see how socialists really value the labor of others. They mean free stuff for themselves with everyone else left holding the bag. Nothing but spoiled, rich brats. So all of that makes AOC this week's biggest bogan emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. 
Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one customer service. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's collateralize this week's Idiot And this week it goes to Stacy Plaskett, ranking member of a butthurt House subcommittee intent on raking Matt Taibbi over the coals for having the audacity to release the Twitter files. Plaskett, by the way, is not a ranking member. She's not even a member. She's a delegate from the Virgin Islands. She can speak in Congress, but she has no voting power. Here's what she had to say. Three weeks ago, House Oversight had this hearing with actual Twitter executives who had actual firsthand knowledge about what happened in 2020. Actual meaning the ones we agree with. And that didn't go so well for the House Republicans because real evidence showed that there wasn't coordination between Twitter and the federal government as they'd like the American people to believe. Real evidence meaning absolutely none whatsoever as opposed to the copious evidence, much of which is independently verifiable, that the FBI and other government agencies bullied and colluded with Twitter to illegally censor speech they didn't like. And that all the so-called Twitter files really showed was a discussion on content moderation, and that we only got a fraction of the discussion. It's not a discussion when Twitter is directly threatened and people lose the entire content of their posts or even their accounts. But then, that's how all so-called discussions with government go. Government is force, not reason or socializing. And the Republicans have brought in two of Elon Musk's public scribes to release cherry-picked, out-of-context emails and screenshots designed to promote His chosen narrative. Elon Musk's chosen narrative. Out of context! Out of context! Yeah, just like the fundies screech when you point out the evil in their holy Bible. So tell us, Plaskett, do you have the so-called context? Do you have all of the other emails and telegram posts and everything else that the journalists search through? If you don't have them, if you haven't seen them, then you cannot know that these were taken out of context. If you do have them, where are they? Why don't you show them? You can't, because this is an excuse, nothing more. Let's cut to the chase. After prattling on for minutes about irrelevant cybersecurity issues that happened long before Musk took over, here's what she said. This isn't just a matter of what data was given to these so-called journalists before us now. There are many legitimate questions about where Musk got the financing to buy Twitter. We know for a fact that foreign countries like Qatar, Saudi Arabia, possibly even Russia and China are investors presently in Twitter. Do these countries now have access to private Twitter user data? What agreements has Elon Musk reached with them? This is very much an insane, paranoid conspiracy theory. 
and one that left Taibbi and fellow journalist Michael Schellenberger shaking their heads in disbelief. Hey, Plaskett, are these all the same people who paid NASA to fake the moon landings, too? Apparently, she's too ignorant to know that before Musk bought Twitter, some major shareholders were Saudi and other foreign investors. Pre-Elon, the second biggest investor after Jack Dorsey was a Saudi billionaire. Back then is the era she was praising when she talked about the actual Twitter with real evidence. Of course, when Taibbi was actually questioned, like from Stephen Lynch and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, every time he tried to actually give an answer, they just interrupt him with, Reclaiming my time! Reclaiming my time! We've heard that tactic before, haven't we? In a blog post, Taibbi wrote, Much of the hubbub yesterday involved the many when did Elon Musk start beating your wife questions and the line about me being a so-called journalist. Regarding the former, both ranking members Stacey Plaskett and Democrat Sylvia Garcia repeatedly asked questions about when I first got Twitter files information and from whom. It was a bizarre collective display of a whole group of politicians not understanding some pretty basic things about how not to act around journalists. They repeatedly and illegally demanded that he give up his source. Quote, I made an agreement on an attribution, and the reason I can't break it is as much for the next source as it is for any current one, or ones in this case. People who are thinking of calling a journalist always look them up to see if they've ever burned or blown a source before. So if you happen to have done it on television, that's going to be a serious problem going forward. Moreover, submitting to an elected official's request to break any deal is not exactly doing future journalists a favor because it sets a precedent. This is why anyone who understands and respects these dynamics doesn't go near that question. Yet the Democrats did it repeatedly. Consider Garcia and Plaskin in this exchange. When was the first time that Mr. Musk approached you about writing uh, uh, the Twitter files? Again, Congresswoman, that would... Uh, I just need a date, sir. But I can't give it to you, unfortunately, because this, this is a question of sourcing, and I don't give up. I'm it's a journalist. A, I don't reveal my source. It's a question of chronology. No, that's a question because of sourcing. Because you earlier said that, that someone had sent you through the Internet some message about whether or not you would be interested in some information. Yes, and I refer to that person as a source. So you're not going to tell us when Musk first approached you? Again, Congresswoman, so you're, asking, you to yes re- you're no. asking a journalist to reveal so a source. So then you consider Mr. Musk to be the direct source of all this? No, now you're, you're trying to get me to say that he is the source. I, 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 well, I just can't answer your question. Well, it is or he isn't. If you're telling me you can't answer because it's your source, well, then that the only logical conclusion is that he is, in fact, your source. Well, you're free to conclude that. Well, sir, I just don't understand. You can't have it both ways, but let's move on. Cause no, he can. He's a journalist. No, he can't, because either Musk is the source and he can't talk about it, or Musk is not the source. And if Musk is not the source, then he can discuss. No. Taibbi wrote, did these people really not understand that identifying who is not a source crosses the same line as identifying who is one? You just can't go into these questions. I started to interject to point this out then realized that Garcia and Plaskett legitimately didn't even know the basics of the civil liberties landscape. And so-called Congress member Plaskett made it all worse by lying about it later on Twitter. Quote, No one is interested in revealing journalists, in scare quotes, sources. 
What we all should be interested in is what discussion, promises, and ordeals Elon Musk has with Taibbi, Schellenberger, House GOP, and definitely Jim Jordan. Get caught lying, make it worse with more paranoid conspiracy garbage. While at the same time telling Taibbi to, quote, take off the tinfoil hat, in the words of Colin Allred. They kept blasting away, doing the old trick of the shyster of making someone answer a nuanced question loaded with false assumptions with merely yes or no. That tells you all you need to know about how dishonest and corrupt they are. But as rude and arrogant as the rest were, none of them came close to the embarrassingly paranoid histrionics of Stacy Plaskett that absolutely make her this week's Idiot Well, that wraps up this Shut Up! I'm Having a Rhetorical Conversation edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Lord Acton. Bureaucracy is undoubtedly the weapon and sign of a despotic government. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. <laughs>